I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John, chapter 1. Be reading 1 John, chapter 1, verse 5, through chapter 2, verse 11. 1 John, chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this, we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Let's bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, would you use these moments as we think about your word to give us a, um, a clearer understanding of the nature of the kind of life that you give us in Christ? And Father, for those who have come to believe in Jesus Christ, I ask you that you would give them certainty about the eternal life that you have given to them. Father, for anyone who does not know you, I pray that you would use these moments to convict them of the absence of life in their hearts, and you draw them to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, however you see fit, use this time. Glorify your name. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're taking a few weeks to investigate the book of 1 John. 
This is a book that's rich in themes, but its ultimate theme is that of eternal life. Eternal life given to those whom God has born from above, given to those who trust in Jesus Christ, this wonderful gift. More than just a kind of a doctrine of eternal life, it is given to us, this book of 1 John, to those who have believed in the name of the Son of God so that you would know that you indeed have that eternal life that is a gift from God. Anyone might claim that they want to live forever, that they want the fountain of youth, or that they want freedom from pain, disease, sickness, and sorrow. Makes sense to even desire that, to ask for it, or to claim that you might one day have it. But more than just finding a fountain of youth, eternal life is defined for us by Jesus himself. In the Gospel of John, chapter 17, verse 3, he tells us what it is. He says, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. One author puts it this way, eternal life is not so much everlasting life as it is a personal knowledge of the everlasting one. Eternal life is relational. It is knowing the one who has life. It is personal. It is being related to and connected to the one who is for you, saves you. Eternal life is more than a commodity. It is a connection. It is personally knowing the one who has life in himself. This is what the book of 1 John is built on and is about. It really causes us to ask the question, who do we know? Not so much what do we have, but who do we know? We know that we ought to know God, we ought to have a relationship with Him. We know that knowing Him is more than just knowing about Him. We understand that key and distinct difference between knowing someone personally and just knowing about someone. Or we could even put in another term of, of knowing a certain proposition to be true. For example, we know right now that there is a war going on between Israel and Hamas. We also know right now that there is a war going on between Ukraine and Russia. I know that because I read the headlines, I watch the news, I know it that way in kind of almost an abstract way, but if you talk to somebody in the Gaza Strip, or you talk to somebody in Ukraine, they say, I know there is war between Israel and Hamas, I know there is war between Ukraine and Russia, but when they say it, they say it because they hear the rumble of rockets, they hear the explosions, they know people who have died, they know it in an experiential way. And so when we are talking about knowing God, which is equivalent to knowing or having eternal life, we're talking about something more than just an abstract concept that you read in the headline. We're talking about a relationship that you possess that defines you. We know that relationships influence us, don't they? We have all kinds of relationships and they really affect us. The kind of relationships that we have with people who change us for good or for bad. 
We know bad company corrupts good morals. Some of us who have children or you've had parents who have tried to do this for you, you know that they try to guard very carefully the relationships that your children have. Because if they get in with the wrong crowd, bad things happen. And you want to get them in with the right crowd because good things happen. Just think how dramatically your relationships affect you. How marriage, friendships, children, parents also dramatically affect the way you live your life. Then think, you know all those people, you know those people in your life, you know who you know, and then you claim, I know God. You know him, you say, in a personal way. Well, what does that do to your life? How does it change your life? Many people say, I know God. And you look at their life and you think, how? In what way do you know God? Your life shows nothing about a relationship with God. John, in this epistle, gives us tests of life. Tests of whether you have eternal life, but it's really, in a sense, a test of whether you have a real relationship with the living God. He's more than checking just to see if you have a pulse. He is checking to see if you have a relationship, a true knowledge of the God who created the world and who sent his Son into the world. And since Jesus defines for us what eternal life is as knowing the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent, then you determine if you have eternal life by proving whether you know this God. So we have to think about what does it mean to know God? The key verse from what I read to you earlier is chapter 2, verse 3, where John writes, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This verse comes in the context of repudiating false claims by the false teachers who would say that they know God, and yet their life really reflects nothing about a relationship with the true God. They say that they walk in the light, or they have the light, but they actually walk in darkness. They say they know God and they have no sin, but really they're making God a liar because God says, do have sin, and that's why he sent Jesus into the world. And so John is helping people to know, how do you really know if you know God? That theme of knowing and knowledge is a theme that is very strong in this book. You'll find that word know 25 times in this letter. That word know means, according to one author, denotes a personal knowledge gained through observation, experience, and instruction. It's not an intuitive knowledge, but rather an experiential one, because you actually have a relationship with the living God, you know him. This knowledge is acquaintance and the forming of a bond in a relationship. It's actually having met somebody and coming to know them and you call yourself in some way a friend of theirs or connected to them. That same word of know is used in elsewhere in scripture to describe the, the intimate sexual relationship between husband and wife. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 25, describing the relationship between Joseph and Mary, 
It says, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. That's a euphemism for a sexual relationship. It's speaking about intimate knowledge. Now that doesn't mean that our intimate, our knowledge of God is sexual in any nature. It just simply points to the fact that it is a personal, close relationship that produces this knowledge, or this knowledge that produces that relationship. What John is saying here in chapter 2, verse 3, is he wants his readers, he wants his audience, and us included, not just to have come to know this God, to have a relationship with him, but to know that we have a relationship with him. And I hope the play on words that John uses really sticks in your mind that you latch onto it because it says it in kind of a funny way. He says that he wants them to know that they have come to know him. It's a knowing that you know something. He's urging his audience towards a complete confidence and absolute assurance that you know this God. This is the theme that we want to unpack here, knowing that you have come to know God. Now I want you to see, as we go through this, if you know this God, and if you know Him, then you should know that you know Him. You should have that certainty. And I want to unpack this together as we ask a couple of questions to help us come to this conclusion of knowing that you know God. First question we'll ask is, who is the God you come to know? Second question is, how do you come to know God? The third question is, what does it mean to know God? And then the fourth question that really wraps up what John's point is, is how do you know that you know God? So let's work through that together a bit here. That first question is, who is the God you come to know? Who is the God you come to know? might seem arrogant, and it does come across as arrogant to some people, to claim that you know God. It's like the ultimate name drop. You know, people drop names just to show that they have some sort of connections. They oh, I know so-and-so in government, and, and the people should you know, think that you're important because you know somebody, or, you know what, I know the president, wow, it's amazing. I know the vice president, wow, it's amazing. I know the congressman or the senator, and you drop those names to try to show your importance and your access to somebody of influence. And when you say you know God, you're saying you know the ultimate and extreme ruler of all things. There is no higher authority than him. And so when you say you know him, is it just the ultimate name drop? It comes across as arrogant. Well, not necessarily. It's true. And the basis of that relationship and connection is not based on any kind of merit of your own. When you say that you know God, and I know many of you would say that, wouldn't you? You say, I know God. You know Him personally, don't you? But when you say that, you're not saying that you know Him completely. Who can say that? Who can say that they know the infinite God, the God who knows the end from the beginning, that you can wrap your mind all the way around Him, and you know everything about Him? You don't even know yourself completely. How many times do you wonder, why did I just say that? Why did I do that? Why, where in the world did that come from? You don't even know yourself completely, so why would we think that we could know God completely? I read a little article, a very brief one, that was uh, giving some idea for how to pray. 
And what it says or offered as a prayer was this, Lord, reveal just how little I know of you. You can always pray that, can't you? Who can say that they've come to exhaust the infinite depths of God? Aren't we always on the lookout to know him more, to know him better, know more about him? You can always pray that. And we can pray that because the God that we have come to know is an inexhaustible God. And this touches on the doctrine of the incomprehensibility of God. That simply means that God is infinite and we cannot know him completely. This is what David says in Psalm 145, verse 3. He says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. There's no exhausting it. You cannot search out the entirety of his greatness, or as Paul puts it in Romans 11, verse 34, Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or the greatness of God is described for us in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 12 through 15, describing our great God. It says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains and scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? What man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and showed him the way of understanding? For behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Trying to wrap your mind around God is like trying to drink all the water in the world, or trying to eat all the bread in the world, or trying to count all the stars in the universe. You can't do it. We can maybe say there are billions of stars in the universe, but who can really fathom what that means for all the energy that is produced by them, all the light that exists, everything that is going on in our universe? You can say it. You can say God is infinite. But who can wrap their minds around it? Even though we cannot know God fully, we can know God truly. We're still called to know him, even if he is inexhaustible, even if his greatness is unsearchable. We're still called to know him. Remember what it says in Psalm 46, verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. And God himself calls us to know him, to know who he is. But we are to remember that front and center through the whole of Scripture, really through the whole of the universe is this personal, knowable God. Fully known? No. But truly known? Yes. And you need to know who he is. He is a someone. He is a personal God. He is not a mysterious, ambiguous force. He is not a God with no name. He is not an ambiguous God, but God who is who he is. John in his letter, gives us several succinct statements to help us with God, to know who the God is that we are to know. Perhaps most essentially, the thing you need to say about God is that he is a triune God. He is Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Although the doctrine of the Trinity is not spelled out in detail through this epistle of 1 John, it is assumed. If you read this letter, you will see John referring to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And the way that he refers to each of them is really unique because they all seem to inhabit the same realm, the same plane of authority, of excellence, of divine attributes. And there is no one else mentioned that reaches those heights. Just those three, Father, Son, and Spirit. Only them, they inhabit the realm of deity. And yet this mystery of the Trinity perplexes our mind. How can there be these three persons and one God? I can't answer that. That's the nature of our incomprehensible God, isn't it? Why aren't we just saying that you cannot wrap your mind fully around it? That does not mean he is not who he is. The Bible is crystal clear. There is one God. The Bible is crystal clear. There are three persons who are fully God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And as you read 1 John, it was hard not to see the Trinitarian nature of the book. So God... God that we come to know is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. There are several other comments that are given to us to help us know who this God is that we are to know. Chapter 1, verse 5, John says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Say that God is light is a the illustrative way of saying that he is holy, that he is pure, that there is no darkness in him. He is the sun that never sets. He is the day without end. He is light with no shadow. He is pure with no imperfections. He is clean with no filth. This means because God is light, God is pure, he is completely holy. It means that his power is without weakness. His wisdom is without folly. His righteousness is without wickedness. His goodness is without badness. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. John gives us another descriptor in chapter 2, verse 13. He says, I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. This God who is pure light, who is purely holy, is the one who has always existed. The one who was there in the beginning because he had no beginning. He was there before it. He's the one who caused it. He is the one who has no beginning and no ending. He is the uncaused cause, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the source of life. He is the one who is there enabling beginnings to happen through his speech so that things would actually have a beginning. And he is the one who is, the one who was, and the one who is to come. This means that he is the one who has walked through all of history and has declared what is to be, what was, and what is. John gives us another descriptor of our God. Chapter 2, verse 29. He says, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. God is light. God is from the beginning. God is righteous. 
Or as Abraham puts it in Genesis 18.25, and says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? God Almighty is the one who always does what is right. He is the standard of right and wrong. You cannot go outside of him to find that standard that exists in him. You listen to the world. The world will often accuse God of wrongdoing. They'll blame him for things. They'll blame him for catastrophes. They'll blame him for all types of evil. They will mock him as some sort of scourge upon the world or as some sort of monster. Just constantly does all that is wrong in the world. Yet, true God, the God that we have come to know through the Lord Jesus Christ is the God who is righteous. That means that everything that he does is right. And he never does anything wrong. He never does anything wrong because he is the standard of right and wrong. You cannot go outside of him to find a standard for what is right and wrong because if you do, then that would be God and not him. If you judge him by a standard that is not in him, then that standard is God rather than the one you are judging. The standard exists in him. He is the measuring stick. He is the foot. He is the meter and the yard and the mile marker. If he says it is wrong, then it is wrong. If he says it is right, then it is right. If he said it is true, then it is true. If he says it is false, then it is false. You cannot go outside of him for those standards. Our God is the righteous God, and all that he does is right. God gives us another one. He tells us in chapter 3, verse 20, that God knows everything. Whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. He is the omniscient one. He is the one who sees everything. He knows every event that happens in the world from start to finish, and he knows them before they happen. He knows every atom in the universe, every molecule, every element. He knows everything about it. He could do math calculations beyond the greatest scholar. He can tell you all of those abstract ideas. He knows everything, and yet the kind of omniscience that John is talking about is a personal one. It's an omniscience that knows your heart. He knows your thoughts before you think them. He knows your words before you say them. He knows your mind. He knows your motives. He knows your words. He knows it all. He knows all about you, inside and out. This is the God whom we are to know. John gives us another one. Chapter 4, verse 8. This is the most famous one. Anyone who does not love God, excuse me, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. We live in a world that is really fascinated by love. It loves the word. It uses the word, but it rarely knows what it is, and it rarely connects true love with the true God. He uses useless statements like love is love to try to define it, and yet the scripture uses a more useful statement like God is love. 
but we are to think that love is God, that's a completely different statement. Say love is God means that anywhere you go to find love, then you define that thing as God. But God is personal, he is not abstract. He is real and true and he acts and the way he acts is in love. God is who he is. And who he is is a loving God. And he gets to set the terms of his love. He sets the standards for it. He tells us in the next verse what this love is. Chapter 4, verse 9, In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. God's love in this world is primarily manifested in his love for sinners by saving them from their sins by giving his son to be the wrath-absorbing sacrifice for their sins. That's God's love. His love is shown in sending his son to be the propitiation for the sins of the world. That means Christ absorbs God's wrath against our sins so that we can experience a reconciled relationship with God through the forgiveness of our sins. That's God's love. It's a weighty thing, and it is centered on His Son. And if we try to strip love away from that, we really don't have love. This is the God whom we are to know. And the whole Bible talks about Him, so we could spend the rest of our life just describing Him and never come to the end of Him, but this is the God whom we are to know, the God who is eternal life. And it begs the second question that we need to ask and answer is, how do you come to know this God? How do you come to have a, a personal relationship with him, one where you can say, I know him? Well, here's how you don't do it. You don't do it by bringing all of your righteousness to God and saying, here, look, God, I should be acceptable in your sight. Let's be friends. That's not the way you do it. We need to base our relationship with God based on the revelation of himself to us. Have you ever had somebody pretend like they know you and it's really clear they don't? They kind of buddy up to you and pretend they know what you're about, what you like, what you don't like, but they really don't know you. And so they say, hey, I, I know just the thing for you. I know exactly what you like. Uh, there's this uh, Brazilian meat restaurant down the road. I'll take you out there. We're going to have a great time and uh, bring you down there. And all they have is meat. And you're a vegetarian. They don't know you, do they? Or they say to you, I've got just the thing for you. I know exactly what you're going to love. Let's go skydiving. They don't know that you're afraid of just walking up a flight of stairs. Give you a dog and you're allergic or ice cream and you're lactose intolerant. They, they don't know you and it's just kind of grating on you because they try to pretend like they know you. 
And so many people do that with God. They pretend what God is like. They kind of take out a piece of paper and they write down things that they think God should be like or draw a picture of here's what he looks like. And they, they make him just nice and comfy, cozy. And they think this is the God that I want to be friends with. And they make themselves best friends with God. That's called idolatry. God abhors it because it mocks who he really is. How do you come to know God? Any true knowledge of God has to be based on his own revelation of himself, of him telling us who he is, what he likes, what he doesn't like. He loves righteousness, he hates sin. So here's the problem with how we come to know God is once we come to know who he really is, we realize we can't know him because we are his enemies. The scripture is so clear, and reality is equally clear. Our minds are darkened. We walk in unrighteousness on our own. We follow the course of our own sinful hearts. Even the course of Satan in this world, it says in Ephesians chapter 2. We have no taste for God, the true God. We have taste for our own makings of God, but for him, the true God, we have no appetite on our own. Galatians chapter 4 verse 8 says, Formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Romans chapter 5 describes us as enemies of God. We have no relationship with him on our own. But what we try to do is we try to squeeze God down to size and put him in our back pocket. We try to strip him of his holiness and make him smaller. We try to strip him of his power and make him smaller, strip him of his righteousness and even of his love and make him smaller so he'll fit right back into our pockets. That's not God. If you don't know the true God, then you don't have eternal life. You have something else, death. How we come to know God is not by our own efforts or by trying to make God something other than he is. We have to accept God on his terms. But remember what God is. God is love. And because of his nature, because of his attributes, because of his holiness, his righteousness, his goodness, and his standards of perfection, he is the one who took the step towards us in sending his son, Jesus Christ, to be the propitiation for our sin. That's not something we did. That's something he did. To take care of our sin problem, he had to act, not us. He's the one who did it. And in doing so, he wipes away sin so that we can be forgiven. And he makes us new. He gives us new life. Jesus says in that famous passage in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Even the epistle of 1 John repeatedly says, We are born of God. He gives us life. He cleanses us of sin. He gives us life. And through that, now we have an appetite for God. We desire Him. We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We want to know Him. Why? Not because of us, but because he puts that in us with a new heart. That's the terms of the new covenant God made way back 
in Jeremiah and Ezekiel? How do you come to know God? Well, really, through what God has done for you. You receive it by faith. You cannot make him be other than he is. You have to receive him for who he is, and who he is is the saving God who will be none other. Receive him as such, and you know him. We need to know who the God is that we need to know. We need to know how we know him, and that's through his work on our behalf through his son and him giving us new life. The third question that we need to ask and answer is, what does it mean to know God? And I know we've been kind of talking about this, but we need to think this through a little bit more. What does it mean to know God? And rather than just give kind of a definition of that, I think it's better to see it. See it in action. Because when you see it in action, then you really grasp better what this is, what this knowledge of God means for an individual life. And so you could really ask the question, who are some people who knew God? And what was their life like? What does it say about what knowing God is? And if you just think about it biblically, you ask the question, who are some people in the Bible who know God? I'm sure a number of people can come to mind if you answer that question or if you know the Bible. One of the people that I think of is Joseph. Joseph knew God. Here's a man who feared God and knew him in a real and relational way. Joseph was that man who um, his brothers didn't like. And they put him in a pit. They sold him to slavery to Egypt. For any of us, if that happened to us, and we claimed to have a knowledge of God, and we knew God was in charge of our life, and we got sold into slavery by our brothers, we might think, done with you, God. Not working out. we got to put an end to this relationship. But not Joseph. He went into Egypt. He there became the slave of Potiphar. And you recall what happened. There he was in Potiphar's house and rose to some level of authority. And then Potiphar's wife sought out Joseph and said, lie with me. It'd be so easy. Nobody would know. Nobody would care. And yet Joseph says this in Genesis 39.9. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That is a man who knows his righteous God, the God who is light. And because of that, Joseph is going to walk in the light and he is going to obey God, even though it would be so easy to disobey him. That's what knowledge of God looks like. In action, Joseph obeys him. Well, there are other examples. Think of David. King David, a man that the Bible describes as a man after God's own heart. You remember what happened to David, don't you? Where Joseph succeeded, David failed. He saw Bathsheba and took her, lay with her. Man full of failure. And yet, in his failure, God, who knew David, sent 
David somebody who rebuked him, confronted him, and what was David's response? Where did he turn? He turned to the God whom he knew. Psalm 32 recounts for us what David experienced in that. He said in Psalm 32, verse 1, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That sounds an awful like, lot like 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. David was a man with great failure, and yet even in his failure, he knew God was a God who forgave him, and he turned to him. While he wallowed in his own despair, he wasted away, but when he turned to the Lord, remembering that he is a God who forgives, he found that forgiveness and restoration. Even in sin, you can still obey God by repenting, confessing your sins, and finding forgiveness. Who else knew God? Plenty of examples, but another prominent one would be Daniel and his friends. They were brought into exile from their homeland in Israel to Babylon. It would be an awful experience. And there they were put in the court of the king to be indoctrinated with the ways of Babylon, taught their deities, taught their customs. It would be so easy to say, well, God has forsaken us, we'll forsake him. God led us into exile, we're going to leave him. And yet, not Daniel, not his friends, because they still know who their God is, a faithful and true God. And so while they had this opportunity to just be indoctrinated in the ways of the world, Daniel and his friends make this resolve in Daniel 1.8. says, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. He wouldn't disobey the God whom he knew. Daniel knew God, and his life showed it by how he lived. He knew his God was a God of cleanness, not of uncleanness, so he would not defile himself. Or think of Stephen, who was so devoted to the Lord in Acts chapter 7 that he preached a sermon that was so faithful to the truth that it angered his audience so much that they wanted to kill him. And that's what they did. They took up stones to stone Stephen because he had told them the truth. And as he is there being stoned by his enemies, it says in Acts chapter 7, in verse 59, some of his last words, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. That is a man who knows God until the end. A man whose life is so intertwined with God that he entrusts himself in the very last moments. But hear this, because Stephen goes on and his last words are this. Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, 
do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. This is a man who knew God so well that he obeyed him to the final breath because Jesus commanded what? Pray for those who persecute you. Stephen was a man who knew God all. Obviously a man resolved to follow Christ. I think his kind of life's mantra was found in Acts chapter 20, verse 24. He says, but I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Paul was a man who never lost the wonder of the grace that God had given him. And Paul was a man who then never lost the resolution to continue to follow the course that God had laid out for him, no matter the cost. All of these men did not just know about God, although they could give us a, a theology lecture to end all theology lectures. But these were men who had boldness, zeal, passion, devotion, perseverance, love, righteousness, forgiveness, contrition, because they know who their God is. And they live their life before the true God, knowing their whole life is lived for Him. That's knowing God. Brings us to the fourth question. How do you know that you have come to know God? How do you know yourself that you actually know this God? Well, that's our verse. First John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. It's really that simple. Have you come to know the holy, righteous, awesome, gracious, loving God? You come to know him in the way that Joseph, David, Daniel, and Stephen, and Paul do. Won't you want to obey him? So I ask you, do you want to obey God? Do you have that desire? And then, do you obey him? How can you claim to know this God and not obey Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. One of the most exciting components of Christianity is that it offers a real relationship with the living God. The God who created everything, God who invented all that's good in the world, you get to have a relationship with the God who made you, who knows you, and all of your quirks and peculiarities. And all your personality is God who knows you. 
He knows where you're going to be in 5, 10, 15 years. He knows where you're going to be in a million years. He knows you. This is the God who is like. And if you know this God, won't you obey him? Won't you structure your life so that all of your life, even to your last breath, is for him? We know we won't do that perfectly. That's why God has given us Jesus Christ, our Adam, who intercedes for us, so that if anyone does sin, we do have an And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, let us fall on our But if your path of life is not fundamentally oriented towards obedience to God, how can you claim you know him? On the other hand, if you orient your life so that you walk in his ways, then you can say, I know that I have come to know him. Because I obey his will. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given a way for us to know that we have come to know you. Lord, you know our faith. You know that we are but dust. You know our frailties, our failures. Father, we have much to confess to you, so we thank you that you've given us the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for out of your grace you've given us your spirit. We know what it is now to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Would you increase this appetite, Father, in us? Help us, Father, to pursue you by obeying you, listening to you, doing whatever you tell us. You know, Father, this is life to know you. What a gift. You've been so good to us, and we pray to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.